Good morning, everyone. Would you like to stand and join us in praising the name of Jesus? in that last song there, uh, Sam. Some of the most encouraging words for us is to hear that uh, for those who are now in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation. No more condemnation. That is just unbelievable when we actually grasp that, what Christ has done for us. For those who are in Christ, there is no more condemnation. That is just such freeing and liberating truth. So thank you for blessing us today and uh, coming around God's word through song. Great to see Sam and Dan working together too there before, wasn't it? You know, Dan says, oh, I think you're slightly out of tune there, Sam, as she comes up and gets it all organised. Well done, guys. Good stuff. Righto. We are just letting our kids go out, which is terrific. Growing ministry there as we get the opportunity to invest in the lives of kids and to uh, see the gospel come in and uh, see them start off from the very foundations of life in uh, following Christ. And um, seeing that built in by uh, the good help of um, teachers. And uh, we really thank God for all those ones that are volunteering there. We've, um, as we've said over the last month or so, Hannah Gibbs has taken that up. So it's just been a great thing to see that uh, grow and flourish and to see uh, these little lives um, get established in Jesus. So really good to see that. Okay, we are now uh, still working through our series of what does that mean, and um, we've done a, two or three talks so far, and uh, we have another talk today, which is going to come out of First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter seven. Um, just think about this for a moment. Can you um, can you imagine being in a marriage relationship uh, where on Sunday morning? Uh, your spouse either sleeps in or chooses to mow the lawn and uh, hasn't the slightest thought at all about coming to church. In fact, it's like that every Sunday for your spouse. They're just not interested in church at all. Can you imagine that relationship when you have a really hard conversation you've had with somebody and uh, the best advice your spouse can do is to help in a hard conversation is just tell that person to go and get lost then. Or maybe... Um, you're trying to tell your daughter about Jesus and your spouse says, do you really have to feed them with all that nonsense and rubbish? Well, this happens. This happens. Well, this happens. We do have mixed marriages where believers are married to unbelievers. Very challenging. What are we to do there when it's like that? Is there license to just leave them, divorce and save all the pain? What happens in a situation like that? Have a look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and uh, I'll have a read through verses 12 through 16. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, And he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife... How do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? 
Father, thank you again as we just uh, come this morning to open up your word. We just thank you for this uh, living, eternal word. Uh, Lord, it is true today, just as true as it was when it was inspired by the Holy Spirit into uh, the writing of uh, Paul the Apostle as he writes here to the Corinthians. Help us today, Holy Spirit, to just lay aside any preconceived ideas. Help us to come with an open heart and an open mind and allow your word to uh, work deeply into our hearts. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that through this, that you will uh, grow the gospel really deeply within us. Uh, give us a real empathy, Lord, for those who have, uh, who are married to unbelievers and a real heart to pray that their spouse would be saved. And uh, Lord, I pray today also you'd help us to uh, just think about these challenges that surround this whole uh, area here in marriages. Uh, we ask and pray for your help now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, today's question essentially has to do with the foundation of human society. What Paul addresses here is the oldest relationship in human history, marriage. Uh, marriage then becomes the bedrock of families and families, families become the building blocks of communities. Uh, even though it's 2,000 years ago in Corinth, They've got plenty of issues here that, need to, they, that they need to work through, particularly when it comes to marriages here at this particular time. Corinth is a Greek city that was very cosmopolitan. It was a very important um, strategic city or logistic city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was on a, what we call an ismuth, which is like this very narrow strait. You can actually look it up on Google Images. It's uh, amazing what they've done. They've cut this rock sort of area through, and it's a it's strategic location um, for the Roman Empire back then, for a port city. It's like a, it's like a distribution city into the Roman Empire. They would distribute their goods across to all the inland um, towns and uh, other cities. So with this mix of trade here at this strategic city, this port city, uh, there evolved all types of corruption and immorality as what happens in these important cities it seems to drag in money and seems to drag in all types of people and uh, everything starts to happen that particular way as in corruption and immorality. And sexual immorality particularly became rampant with Corinth. And you may have heard of the old phrase, to play the Corinthian. If you've heard that, it's really just a phrase about being sexually immoral or promiscuous. Just sort of come from this uh, um, tag or this, um, what was known about the city of Corinth. Paul takes the gospel to Corinth and it's into this context that he shares about Jesus. This um, city filled with vice for all the wrong reasons. And this letter here that Paul writes to the Corinthians is one of three but you're saying, Todd, we've only got Corinthians 1 and Corinthians 2. Uh, they actually wrote three letters to Corinthians, but we don't have either the first or the second or the third. We're not sure which one's which in there. Uh, but that doesn't matter. What we have in Corinthians 1 and 2 is exactly what God wanted us to have. He did write three letters. There's one here that's writing, and he's actually writing as it appears to answer some questions. They've written questions to Paul, and they're saying, well, what do we do in this situation? How do, what do we do here? How do we deal with that? And in chapter 7, verse 1, there's a question here that Paul is answering. And it says in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they've written something to Paul. Say, Paul, what do we do here? And it, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? So from this question, uh, Paul opens up into spirit-filled principles for marriage. The Holy Spirit moves Paul to write instructions for marriage that will glorify God in various contexts here. And perhaps just to help us uh, get a bit of a grasp of the, of the passage here, you might think, okay, it's sort of gone from verse 1 about not having sexual relations with a woman. I mean, how did he get to marriages? Paul addresses a few different groups of people through this chapter here. He talks about the idea of sexual relations being confined as God has ordained it to the bounds of marriage to start with. Uh, then he talks about singleness um, in, the, in verses about sort of 8 to about uh, 10 or 8 to 9. Singleness is a great thing, Paul says. Verses 10 to 11, Paul talks about Christian married couples. Some good teaching in there, which we're not going to get into today. And then he gets to 12 and 16, where he talks about another group of couples or marriages. And this is where a believer is married to an unbeliever. So that was all happening here in uh, Corinth at that particular time. That's where we want to address our attention today here is in verses 12 to 16, where believers are married to unbelievers. And the question we have today comes out of primarily verse 14, which says this, 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Bit of a tricky one there. An unbelieving husband, so not a believer, or wife, is made holy. Or the children are holy. What does that mean? Well, we'll unpack that as we work uh, through this passage today as we think about that. But to do that, we need to really think about what is marriage in its pure form from a godly perspective. And we'll begin to break it down from there and we'll get to the point where we actually begin to look at this verse at the end where we have mixed marriages here. So the first one, marriage. Marriage. Marriage is the oldest human relationship in human history. BFF or Best Friends Forever was not found just recently on Instagram. Best Friends Forever was found in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they entered into the first marriage relationship that God had ordained for them. Genesis 2, 25, we see the first marriage ceremony. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, It's a great passage of scripture there where it just sees man in perfect harmony with God and perfect harmony with each other. And that idea of the end there, that man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed, it means there's pure innocence here between man and woman at that particular time uh, with God and with each other. Now, the first thing as I see here, as I look at this very first marriage, it was an arranged marriage. An arranged marriage. God brought Eve to Adam. Now, I find that really interesting because I'm the father of three daughters. I think I can see a principle just right there. I'll organise that for you, girls. No, I'm getting nods there. I thought it was a good principle. Marriage is between one man and one woman. They are brought together in covenant by God and before God. They make a commitment and an agreement before God to be bound together as husband and wife till death do them part. It is holy matrimony, as you might hear in some of the wedding vows. They are the wedding vows. It's what God brings together and it's till death do them part. This is a unique relationship that God has made here and created. And the key thought for me here as I think about that passage in uh, Genesis here is that they shall become one flesh. And the aspect here in this marriage relationship is oneness. Oneness, not separate entities, but a oneness still with um, a separateness in that, but in a oneness in relationship. Marriage is designed by God for two lives to come together in such a close union that it does resemble this oneness. There's a giving and serving of each other that demonstrates love in some of the highest forms in this oneness of this relationship. And out of this oneness relationship, by God's grace, come children. And then they are raised in this really strong, committed oneness God-honouring relationship. This is what God has ordained and put together in the marriage covenant, in the marriage relationship. Here's this unifying effect here, this unifying relationship. And if we actually drill that just a little bit deeper to sort of think, well, what's this oneness really pointing us towards? This oneness of a marriage relationship is designed to reflect the oneness of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. It's meant to be a reflection of the oneness that there is within the Godhead. Within marriage, there is meant to be no rivalry, no tension, no discord, pure love, pure generosity, and many, many more things that we think about that are so wonderful. Marriage is supposed to reflect this perfect relationship within the Godhead, this oneness that exists between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Marriage between a man and a woman is meant to reflect this giving to each other 
without reserve. Marriage is a design of God, an absolute design of God, that we would see something of him within and through this relationship. Marriage then is held in um, the absolute highest respect by God. It is to be respected, it is to be kept holy, and it is to be used to glorify him, a marriage relationship in its pure form. It's a glorious relationship. But is that what we see today in marriage? That purity, that harmony? Is that what we experience ourselves in our own marriages? We don't exactly see that harmony, do we? We don't exactly see that oneness today. The whole understanding of marriage, unfortunately in today's age and down through the centuries and ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the whole understanding of marriage has been distorted and it's lost, particularly today, in a haze, in like a smokescreen of creative designers trying to put together the wedding party of the century. That's what marriage has become. People will put more time, energy and money into, as it were, designing their reception or their wedding party than what they will into actually preparing themselves for this lifelong journey of marriage. They'll go to extraordinary lengths and invest huge amounts of money and time. We are going to put on the party of all parties for our wedding reception. It gets lost in that. They actually lose sight of what marriage is all about. For some men and women, the ultimate in life is to find that perfect marriage partner. For them, that's what life's all about. If I can just find that really hot guy, if I can just find that drop-dead gorgeous babe, if I can just locate him or her, my life will be complete. It'll just fall into place. Everything will now come true. All of my dreams will just magically appear before me and we will grow old and live happily ever after. Some people think like that. That's how they approach it. But what do the facts tell us about marriage? McCrindle Research tells me this. Four out of five couples will actually live together before getting married. They just want to try it for a while. Just make sure they are compatible, possibly. The average marriage today lasts 12.1 years. It's probably longer than some of you thought there. That's what the average marriage lasts today. One out of five people will marry more than once. One out of three marriages will end up in divorce. Now that's actually an improvement in figures. But it's only an improvement because today there are less people getting married than what there has been nearly through the entire history before us. They just don't get married, so therefore there's less divorces. Marriage is at its lowest rate, I think, now, particularly in Australia, for for the last two decades or 20 years. So people are going into marriage with unrealistic expectations. And they have absolutely no idea of God's design or intentions for marriage. They're entering into marriage with an attitude like this. As long as he or she meets my desires and doesn't cut across the dreams of my life, then I'm in. But as soon as he or she messes with my agenda in this marriage, I'm out. Marriage in many respects isn't really about the we, it's actually about me. That's what's happened to marriage now. They're not talking about the we coming together, it's all about the me. What can I get out of this? How can I look better through this? Marriages are broken. In fact, every marriage that has ever been is broken. The selfishness of sin has come in and trampled all over the marriage relationship. And the result is every single marriage is broken. Even the very best marriages are broken. The only difference is, is the differing levels of brokenness within marriage. There is no perfect marriage. Don't ever, ever be fooled by that. If you're looking for marriage as being the ultimate in life, if that's your expectation there, you are in for a big shock. If you're looking for a husband or a wife who will save you from a boring, meaningless life, 
and really ultimately fulfill you, you're in for a big shock. A big shock. And we easily think like that. Think of all those reality TV shows that communicate this message of you just got to sort of play the field. And, and if you watch some of those shows, which I don't watch, I just see some of the shorts. They're putting them through all sorts of tests and, and you know, trying to see whether they're compatible. And if, I, if he or she can pass all those tests, they'll find the most suitable guy for me. And, and we'll have the perfect relationship and we'll grow old together. Mr. Wright will just save me from this unfulfilled life of singleness. That's just not true. That's just not true. Ask anybody who's married. And if they give you a real answer, they'll tell you it's just not true. It won't satisfy all your dreams. It won't meet all your expectations. This is where Paul is writing to in Corinth. And the fact that he's writing 2,000 years ago makes no difference to us today, thinking, well, do they have different type of troubles back then? People haven't changed. People haven't changed. Time has moved on, but people don't change. They didn't have uh, reality TV shows, but that doesn't matter for them back then. They were facing the same dramas we're facing. They've got the same dreams, the same goals, and the same aspirations about life in Corinth 2,000 years ago that we have today. And Paul is writing to these Christians here, living in this immoral society where anything goes as far as sex and relationships are concerned, and particularly in marriage as well. This is where Paul's writing to today. And these marriages are broken. Every marriage is broken. Okay, so that's where it is. There's this um, uh, sort of ultimate in marriage that God's created in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Marriage since the fall in the garden has broken. Every marriage is broken. But there is hope. Absolutely there is hope. And despite every marriage suffering in this brokenness, God offers hope through the gospel for two willing parties who are willing to come together and be open to the gospel and to allow the Holy Spirit to pour in grace, you can see difficult marriages redeemed. Difficult marriages can be restored. Very obvious here that when Corinth, that as Paul shared the gospel, people believed what he said in a say because the church was established here. And in this also, it's very obvious that sometimes... In some relationships here in Corinth, when Paul preached the gospel and people become saved, a marriage relationship was involved, but only one person got saved in that marriage relationship. And we see that there in verses 12 and 13. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. It's fairly easy to say here at this point, the Corinthian church is a fairly young church in spiritual maturity. Very, very um, sort of basic stages and a pretty diverse background group of people as well. If you read through the book of Corinthians, you'll see there's a fair bit of stuff happening there. And they've probably brought in there a whole range of ideas when it comes to relationships here in this church at Corinth particularly when maybe the husband's got saved or the wife's got saved or, and vice versa, maybe the husband didn't get saved in a relationship or the wife didn't get saved. Possibly in this young church, in this immature spiritual stage, possibly some people were telling them within the church, hey, you know, you shouldn't be married to that unbeliever. That's not going to be good for you. You know, he or she will drag you down as a Christian. You need to probably actually get rid of your unbelieving wife or your unbelieving husband. Or maybe others who've just believed the gospel in this young church here in Corinth have thought, because they've been struggling in their marriage, here's my chance to ditch my arrogant husband, loudmouth brute that he is. I've been over him now for years. He hasn't become a Christian. Here's my chance to divorce him. In this immature state, they could have been thinking like that. Or my wife's been nothing but a lazy nag. She doesn't meet my needs. She doesn't respect me. She hasn't become a Christian. I've put up with her rubbish long enough, so here's my ticket out. In this immature state, they can think like that. Possibly that was rolling around with Corinth at that time. In an atmosphere where people know little about God, uh, they become very self-centred in their thinking. And when that happens, our thoughts become distorted towards our own selfishness. That's why here at Exchange, we love to open up the Bible. It's a glorious gift that God's given to us 
Because if we don't have this, we begin to look very much inwardly and we think very much selfishly. So Paul writes to correct that. He writes to correct this thinking here that's possibly going around this church here at Corinth. Paul writes this and he says, if your husband or wife isn't a Christian, that doesn't mean you can divorce him or her. That's not on, Paul says. If they are happy to stay on in their relationship, well, good. Stay together. Stay together. Don't look for a way out. This begins now to introduce this this, um, tricky part here of this passage and this idea here of, of challenging relationships because in a relationship between a believer and an unbeliever, it can go two ways in this scenario. It can. It's got the possibility to go way better than you ever expected. It really has got that possibility to do that. But it's also got a possibility where the believer can actually, unbeliever, sorry, could bail out quickly. And that does happen, unfortunately, from time to time. It can go really, really good or it can go really, really bad. Now, if it's a believing husband, then the unbelieving wife should have discovered over time that she's married to a different man. A different man than what she met at the altar when they first got married. So if it's a believing husband, the unbelieving wife should discover something very different about now my husband who's become a Christian. This guy has changed. This is the woman thinking here. He loves me in such a different way now. Before he was selfish and demanding. He showed little patience for me. He used to make me feel worthless and insignificant at times, but now he's different. He actually considers me first. He values my opinion. He listens to me. He's patient and gentle with me. He stands up for me and he protects me. He loves me on a whole new level. This marriage has got so much better now. An unbelieving wife, you'd like to think and would hope would experience that change in now a believing husband. Or a believing wife could have this effect on an unbelieving husband. I'm not married to the same woman I met at the altar 15 years ago. She is different. She is so much softer now. She respects and she affirms my leadership. She willingly submits to my decisions and she does without giving me the silent treatment. She tries really hard to provide a harmonious home life. She desires to meet my needs first. Since becoming a Christian, my wife is a new person and our marriage is so much better for it now. The unbelieving husband should experience a dramatic change in his believing wife. Something that he should see there is fashioning her into becoming a better person. When one marriage partner is a Christian, we should pray for and live for a better marriage relationship. We should be really aiming for that, to glorify Christ through that now. Letting him live out through our lives. It could become a whole lot better, a marriage relationship. But it doesn't always go that way either. That would be the way to go and eventually your unbelieving husband or wife to get saved. But it doesn't always go like that. Mixed marriages are often filled with a lot of pain and loneliness. A lot of difficulty. Because you see, in a mixed marriage, your relationship only goes to a certain level and it stops. It can really only go to like a, an earthly level or a natural level. And it won't rise above that while you've got an unbeliever with a believer. It doesn't truly get into a spiritual level if you've got an unbeliever there married to a believer. Because you can't talk to your unsaved spouse about the rebellion of humanity against God. Because your unsaved spouse, he or she will just not even get involved in that conversation. You can't talk to your unsaved spouse and then try and then get get caught up in the wonders of Christ at Calvary. 
because your unsaved husband or wife just won't even get into that conversation. They don't know what you're talking about. And you couldn't even suggest to your unsaved spouse, how about we pray over this? This is some of the pain and the challenge and the difficulty that comes here in mixed marriages. I know of one lady who I've known for probably 30 years. Uh, She's had an unsaved husband of probably nearly 40 years of marriage. Uh, And she has walked really carefully around him that whole 40 years of marriage, particularly when it comes to spiritual things. I've actually witnessed her one night when um, this lady doesn't have a license. She got her unsaved husband to uh, bring her out to the Bible study at our house. I remember this lady coming in visibly upset, visibly upset when she walked in through the doors of our house. And uh, she was so sort of treated coldly about having to be driven out to this Bible study. You know, what am I doing this for? What a waste of time. She was visibly upset. She longs to share with her husband the joys of Christ, but he's not even interested in the slightest about hearing it. She's experienced lots of pain. And in some mixed marriages, there is deep sorrow and sadness at these times. And we've got to be aware of that, even here at Exchange, for those that we might know in a marriage where there's a believer and unbeliever, and come alongside these people, love them and support them in Christ. Because they go through lots of hard times, lots of difficulty. And if you ever got some advice of these people who are involved in these mixed marriages here, they would probably say this, don't ever get fooled by this world and place marriage way up there on a pedestal to such a point that you are prepared to go and marry someone who's not a believer. Just because you want to experience marriage. You'll just go and settle for anybody. They would say, don't do that. Because if you do, you will let yourself in for a world of pain and difficulty. You may not experience it early on, but particularly when kids come along, you'll experience a real ramping up of that pain. They will say, don't be unequally yoked. Do not be fooled by this world. Paul tells us, though, in verse 14... The great good can come from a mixed marriage. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what does Paul mean here when he says that? What does Paul mean? An unbelieving spouse can be made holy, or children are holy in a mixed marriage. Does that mean when Paul says that, that these unbelieving spouse is right before God and will be saved because they're married to a Christian? Is that what Paul's getting at? Well, I can tell you that an unbelieving spouse isn't saved because of being married to a Christian. That will not happen in the sense of, if we follow this through in Ephesians here for us, because Ephesians tells us this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift from God. It's not a result of works. It's all about what Christ has done for us. Salvation happens as God opens up our hearts to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of my sins. It's a personal work. It's the work of an individual. The Bible tells us in Matthew, it's it's a narrow gate that leads to life and it's only one person at a time. We don't come through as families of six or four or five or three or two. We come through one person at a time as God works on the individual. It's personal. So we're not saved by another person's faith or belief. A believing wife doesn't save her unbelieving husband by her faith and vice versa. The weight of the Bible tells us that salvation is a personal understanding and decision to place our trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work at Calvary for us. But Paul still says here, the unbelievers made holy. What does that mean then when Paul says that? 
Well, I believe that Paul is saying this. When an unbeliever is married to a believer, so here we have this mixed marriage. So when an unbeliever is married to a believer, the unbeliever is placed in an influence of holy living. There's now an influence upon the life of this unbeliever in that marriage. The believer represents Jesus Christ in a very unique and close way before the unbeliever when they are literally living together. It doesn't get any closer than that, really. So they're living in this influence here. The believer gets to live out the gospel in a very visible and practical way before the unbeliever. He or she can demonstrate Christ, can demonstrate Jesus in this continuous life of close relationship with their spouse who is an unbeliever. So the unbeliever then will live in this loving influence of the gospel in this consistent, constant way. This doesn't make the unbeliever holy in a salvation sense, but there should be an influence upon that unbeliever to a better life and perhaps in a moral sense, a more holy life. Not in a salvation sense, but in a moral sense. Could be something like this. They're choosing what they're going to watch on TV tonight. The believer in that relationship will not turn the TV on to something that's degraded or immoral. They're certainly not going to watch Love Island together. I've never watched that show, but I have seen the shorts on TV for it. And I've advised, don't go near it. The believer's not going to watch Love Island, which is filled with immorality. This will possibly then have an influence on the unbeliever to not be further tainted by viewing these immoral actions on TV and further pollute their mind. This is the influence now that the believer is having upon the unbeliever in this situation. And in a sense, the unbeliever will come away a better moral person for it. Not in a salvation sense, but just in a living sense. You see, the believer brings an atmosphere of godliness to this relationship that the unbeliever may never, ever experience because they're not married to this believer. And providing the unbeliever stays, because Paul talks about that, hey, if they want to stay, stay. Keep married, don't, don't look for divorce. Providing the unbeliever stays, this influence that the believer has can only be for the good. Can only be for the good. It will bring them into a more of a holy life in a moral sense, not a salvation sense. And the same goes for the children in this passage. Paul says, you know, as, it, as it were, your children won't be holy. The believing parent in this situation will have a significant influence on raising that child or children to know Christ. That believing parent has a chance to pray with those kids. In an unbelieving marriage, full stop, there'll be no even thought about praying with the kids. But in this one, at least... The believing parent can pray with the kids. You'll get a chance to talk to your kids or child about Jesus. You'll get to demonstrate to your children how much you treasure Christ above everything else in this world. So in the same sense, these children will not be saved by the parent's faith, but they will come under the influence of a believing parent and hopefully guide them down the path of holy living and ultimately to make Christ their personal Lord and Saviour. So in that same sense, there's an influence here upon children as well in this mixed marriage. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about when he, when he talks about this holiness here upon unbelieving spouse or children in a mixed marriage. Because Paul could say the alternative here. Just divorce, split up, save yourself the pain. Just get out of it. Don't go through all the grief. But if that was to happen, what influence would there be then? There'd be no influence. There'd be no influence at all. Your chances of influencing the, the unbelievers in that relationship will just fall away. And this is what Paul says here in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's saying the unbeliever has a significant influence here on winning, uh, the believer has a significant influence here on winning the unbeliever 
to Christ. How do you know, Paul says, that you won't save your unbelieving spouse in this situation? Live out the gospel as best you can in these really challenging circumstances. Marriage is a glorious God-given gift. It's not the ultimate in life. The ultimate in life is to know Christ and him alone. Marriage is this beautiful relationship where we get to reflect the oneness of the Trinity. Marriage is this Christ-exalting relationship where we get to build the foundations of our children so they too would love Christ and want to follow him. And marriage in Christ is this wonderful relationship where we find the safety and security of love and compassion. We have to work hard at our marriages. And even more so when it's a mixed marriage. It's not God's will, as Paul has it here, for us to walk out of that marriage because it's too hard. He wants us to hang in there and persevere by trusting in him. And could I say, for those who are in those mixed marriages, it is tough, it is difficult, but one of the most significant ways that we could actually influence an unbelieving spouse there is to just come humbly calling for God's grace each and every day to live out the gospel. To live out the gospel. To show all the fruits of the Spirit. And to do that in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ who want to share that journey with you as best they possibly can. They don't know exactly what you're going through, but they know that you are going through many, many moments of challenge. Many, many moments of extreme pain. And we here at Exchange should be the people that actually want to listen to them, come alongside them, pray with them and support them so they can persevere through. How do we persevere through, though? That's part of it is to do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. How how do we persevere through these really painful, challenging times? How do we have the power to carry on when it's really, really difficult? We need to look to the ultimate marriage partner. We need to look to the ultimate marriage partner. The Bible refers to Christ and the church as a marriage. Jesus is the ultimate husband. Revelations 19.7 says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The Lamb there is Christ and the bride there is the church. Us, the people. And we see a perfect picture here of this Lamb and the husband as the husband here in Ephesians. Husbands, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If we just get a grasp here of Christ as the husband and us, the church, as the bride and overlay the gospel on top of that, this is the picture we get. Jesus, the husband, the ultimate marriage partner, dies for a bride that doesn't love him. Who does that? Who walks down to the altar and marries somebody who doesn't love them? Because you know why? It's not that we first love Christ... But he first loved us. Jesus came for a bride that was living life on their own terms in total disrespect to him. Who marries somebody like that? Jesus remains faithful to a faithless bride. We're not always faithful, but he remains faithful. His bride goes astray, but he never goes astray. So much so that he stays the course of this marriage and he dies for this bride. See, this is where we get the strength to carry through in those mixed marriages. Jesus supernaturally infuses us with strength. We call that grace. In those times where I'm thinking, 
my unsaved spouse, I don't think he or she loves me. But Jesus gives me the strength to love when I'm not feeling loved. Jesus doesn't tell me, wait till you feel loved and then give that love back. Jesus says, love when you don't feel loved. And he provides the strength for that. We need to look to Christ as the ultimate spouse. And he will enable us to carry on. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you this morning to uh, thank you again. To thank you again, Lord, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, that he has married his bride and that we are his bride. God, that we were a loveless and faithless bride that went astray. But Jesus stayed the course and loved when we didn't love him, was faithful when we were not faithful to him. And today, Lord, we live in this broken world where marriages are broken and they experience this pain. And they experience it even more so in these mixed marriages, believers to unbelievers. God, we ask and pray today that you'd help us to be aware of those even in our own church, even here at Exchange where we have that situation. God, first and foremost, we pray for those believing spouses involved in that situation. We pray, God, for your grace to fill their hearts every day. Lord, perhaps when they lie in bed next to their unbelieving spouse and they wonder how much longer can this go on, God, I pray that you will give them a vision of Christ. You'll give them a vision of Jesus. You'll give them a vision of him who first loved us and not that we first loved him. And God, I pray that you will give them supernatural grace to carry on. You will give them a love for their spouse who's not saved at this time. God, I pray you'll give them the grace to live out the gospel before their unsaved spouse and family. And Father, we pray, we ask and we pray for your mercy. God, we pray for your mercy upon these unsaved husbands and wives in these relations. We pray, Father, that you would be merciful to open up their hearts and to open up their eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And that, Lord, you'd be pleased to do that through their believing spouse. God, we ask for miracles of salvation to take place there. God, I know some of these people have been going for years and years and years with an unbelieving spouse. God, we pray for a miracle in those relationships that you would save those unbelieving husbands or wives. Lord, help us here at Exchange to come alongside these ones, to share their pain with them, to hear what they're going through, to unite together with them in prayer and do what we can, Lord, to influence these unbelievers to become followers of Jesus. Please help, Lord, for uh, the influence we have on the kids in those relationships too. God, that they would see Christ living out through their believing mother or father. And Lord, that would be an instrument that you would use to save the souls of those children as well. God, again, we come before you and thank you today for your eternal word and thank you for your spirit that works in and through that word today. And we pray that this has uh, done something within us to change us today, to become more like Christ and more compassionate as we reach out, Lord, in these situations. Lord, we do ask and we do pray uh, that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we come around the communion table, any questions or thoughts from that passage? No, it's all good. If anybody would love to catch up with me, um, post the service and talk a bit more about that, we'd love to see you. Or pray, pray about anything else, uh, we'd love to catch up with you. Breeze, just kind of, uh, come and lead us around the communion table now.
can we just have Kirk and Elliot to um, hand out the communion, please? So as we've heard today, according to God's sovereign will, if our partner is unsaved or, you know, a relationship where, sorry, not a relationship, a marriage where our partner is unsaved, then we are to remain faithful to that. Even if, um, you know, as a Christian we don't want to, but our partner is willing to continue, then we have to do that because he asks us to and that honours God. And it's also an important role because that can also lead to the future salvation or, you know, that opportunity to sow those seeds into the lives of their children. But the thing is, you know, many of us aren't in this situation as well, but that this sort of story can still apply to us because we have made decisions in our life which potentially have lifelong repercussions you know we we may be in a relationship sorry in a marriage that you know we were married before one partner became saved or or maybe we we got married thinking that it'll all be fine they'll get saved later on and but we've all had various sins and some of them are going to be with us for the rest of our lives for some of us it could be suffering medical conditions from from misuse of drugs or alcohol but whatever it is God asks us to remain faithful to him and to repent of our sins I suppose the core of this message is that God wants us to honour him in all things. As in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So yes, we have made sinful choices in our lives, which have just potentially destroyed relationships and scarred us. But regardless of what our lives look like now, Regardless of what sin we are still battling with and need to overcome, Jesus has defeated sin and death once and for all by taking the full penalty of our sin upon himself. He doesn't look at us and judge us in our sinful, corrupted state because he sees Jesus. And Jesus is our atoning sacrifice so that we are made right in his sight. Just like it says in 2 Corinthians 5:21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteous 